Hello everyone. Before we start today's podcast, some exciting news for you. You can experience the Inside Politics podcast live in Dublin on May 16th when Hugh Linehan, Jennifer Bray and I will be joined by Cliff Young of Ipsos, one of America's top pollsters, to talk about the US election, our own local and European elections and much more. It's a breakfast event kicking off at 8am in Trinity College. If you'd like to attend, you can get tickets at irishtimes.com forward slash events. That's irishtimes.com forward slash events. I hope we see lots of you there. You're listening to the Irish Times Inside Politics podcast. It's Wednesday, September the 7th, and you're very welcome to the weekly politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. In a few minutes, we'll be discussing Ruan McCormick's new book, The Supreme Court, with Ruan himself and with barrister Tony McGillicuddy. But first, I'm joined by our deputy political editor, Pat Leahy. You're very welcome. Pat, we have breaking news just coming in about the position of Junior Minister John Halligan in the government. Yeah, um, my colleague Fia Kelly is reporting that... um, John Halligan, who's the Waterford TD and the junior minister, is threatening to resign from uh, the government um, on the issue of services in Waterford Hospital. He has apparently cancelled all his ministerial engagements um, for the day. There are emergency meetings between himself, the Minister for Health, Simon Harris, Michael Noonan and Simon Coveney planned uh, for later. This follows from uh, a story Fieke reported earlier today that the um, there was an inquiry into the services uh, at Waterford Hospital was carried out um, by an independent expert and that was um, uh, that was one of the conditions for um, Mr Halligan joining the government in the first place. It was in the, the programme for government and Fiac was reporting that the expert report had suggested far from additional services being brought to Waterford that um, that Waterford Hospital should actually on a safety grounds or on health grounds should lose some of the services or some of the services currently provided there should be transferred uh, to Cork. Um, that seems to be the uh, problem. Mr Halligan previously... I mean, he, was, he, was, he is the most, probably fair to say, the most reluctant member of the government. Yeah, I think that would be the general perception around Leinster House that he, he was the most reluctant uh, of all the independents to join and some of his colleagues during the final stages of the negotiation of the programme for government uh, didn't believe that Mr Halligan would join in the event he did he's a uh, he's a junior minister he forced a confrontation or he among others forced a confrontation with uh, Fine Gael over the issue of uh, of Mick Wallace's bill on fatal uh, abortion in cases of fatal fetal abnormalities in July he was also deeply uncomfortable with the um, uh, the the Apple decision last week. There has been a lot of speculation that Mr. Halligan wouldn't actually last the course in government um, uh, 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 all summer. Things may be reaching uh, uh, a bit of a. Uh, what, a bit what's of a the crunch consequence now. if the government loses John Halligan? It loses its majority in uh, in the House. For a start, it needs fifty-eight votes with the Fianna Fáil abstention. Um, if Mr. Halligan uh, goes, then it's uh, it's under that number. But whether that would bring it down uh, immediately, uh, I'm not so sure. Uh, actually, there are other independents who support maybe one, or people may simply decide to support it or not on a case by case basis. It's already 
a minority government it already needs to win the votes of Fianna Fáil on a case by uh, case by case well, basis. As, as I, think I, what as this I w- recall back at the time <coughs> and the time leading up to the formation of the government it was a sort of it, it was an element of Fianna Fáil's decision in its um, in its um, supply and confidence yes. arrangement that the government would have a certain number of deputies i.e. that the, that number That's of right. deputies was enough to pass the motion in the all given that, that Fianna Fáil would abstain. That's right. Uh, my sense from Fianna Fáil is that they're not of a mind to rigidly apply that uh, so that if the government can't muster 58 votes on any particular uh, uh, on any particular dull issue, they will not make an issue uh, of that because they want to be seen to make this work. They want the government to last um, uh, at least in the short term. But I think this issue is likely, the Dáil, of course, is debating the Apple motion today, but uh, I think this is likely to dominate, uh, is likely to dominate political news uh, over over the course of the day. If Mr. Halligan walks, it's a significant blow uh, for the government the and the threatens their survival of the government. If he doesn't walk, if he is bought off with promises of extra services for Waterford Hospital that independent experts have said there isn't a medical justification for, then I think that really saps the authority uh, of the government to make any difficult decisions. And with the budget approaching, uh, I think that is possibly an even greater threat to its uh, uh, to its existence. So if this proceeds as it looks like it's proceeding over the course of the day, um, it's a very grave matter for the government. Right. Let's let's turn now from the from the grubby realities of the legislative process to the to the third arm of government, which it seems to me, Ruan McCormack has has not received that much scrutiny in this country co- compared to other ones. I mean, looking at your book, I, I I I'm reading your book, which I have to say, and I hate giving a compliment to a colleague, it's really fantastically well written and full of brilliant anecdotes as well as an over overview of the whole culture of the Irish judicial system. But I realise that I know far more about the US Supreme Court as a layman than, than I ever knew about the Irish Supreme Court before I read this book. It's it's a kind of an unexplored area. Is that true? Absolutely, which is the insight that gave rise to the book in the first place. Um, in 2013, I started covering legal affairs for the newspaper. And um, as I was reading myself into the brief, this was the sort of book I was looking for. I mean, you have libraries full of books about constitutional law, about legal history in Ireland. But there's no single book. A lot of them come at the Supreme Court indirectly, and of course they deal with the big judgments. But there's no single book that looks at the Supreme Court as an institution. Um, You know, clearly this is one of the most powerful institutions in Irish life. It has a huge impact on people's lives. It has a huge impact on the way that the state operates. Um, So not only did you not have a book about it, but you didn't have any book uh, for the general reader. And that was very much what I wanted to write because I'm not a lawyer. I don't have a background in law. Um, And I wanted a book that would explain where this sits in, where this institution sits into the architecture of the Irish state and, you know, what effect it's had on Irish society in the 20th century. Um, I think the point about the US Supreme Court is absolutely valid. um, And I think the reason is probably politics. Um, Well, first of all, I suppose the US Supreme Court is extremely powerful, even by the standards of, you know, powerful constitutional courts across the world, because 
the US Constitution is virtually unamendable. Um, you can do it, but it's really difficult. You know, you need uh, certainly in a in a tie at a time when politics in the US is polarized, it's virtually impossible. Um, and so, what that means is that the US Supreme Court's word on any constitutional question is the final word. And it's not going to be changed. Um, but politics, by politics, I mean that the whole court, the whole process of appointing people to the court in Washington is politicized and is understood in a political way um, in the United States. You know, appointments and nominations are a political dogfight. Um, appointments and the work of the court is seen as an extension of political battle. And I think that's a language that people in the US intuitively understand. And so you can slot the US Supreme Court into that category we call politics and current affairs in a way that hasn't really happened here. I think maybe legal journalism is still in its infancy here. Um, you know, you had really good work being done in the 1980s in McGill in particular under um, Vincent Brown and Cullum Tobin. You know, some really seminal work was done on the Supreme Court then, uh, and I draw on it in the book. Um, but you're right that there hasn't, hasn't been a sort of sustained... Um, scrutiny of the Supreme Court since then, I'd say. So, what's the what's the DNA of our Supreme Supreme Court in Ireland? You know, what what, what are its roots, and can we can we trace those roots uh, um, through to the present day from its foundation at the with the foundation of the state? Well, what happened was in 1924 they they designed the new court system post independence, and they came up with the name the Supreme Court, but. Um, as I say in the book, it was more of an evolution than a revolution in that they, you know, they retained the, the common law system that we'd had under the British regime. Um, they retained the adversarial system. They didn't look into maybe uh, designing a sort of European style uh, legal system. And I say it was pretty much like splashing a coat of green paint over the red post boxes in that you had, a, if you had walked into a court in 1925 in the four courts, um, or sorry, it wasn't the four courts because the four courts had been destroyed, but if you'd walked into the Supreme Court in 1925, it would have looked and sounded very much like a, a court under the under British rule. <clears throat> Gradually, that started to change. You, you had new generations of lawyers coming through, new generations of judges who um, started to take more of an interest in the constitution, started to get their heads around the idea of a written constitution. Which and this, of course, the first constitution of the free state. Exactly, yeah. the hmm. constitution of the free state in 1922. But the key point about that constitution in 1922 and the, the source of the Supreme Court's power was that it introduced the principle of judicial review, which was an, an American invention. And what that means is that the courts, the judges have the right to review decisions made by government or government agencies. And you can imagine the power that that gives the judges. Um, that was retained in 1937 with the 37 Constitution. And there was always resistance to it. I mean, particularly within, say, the Department of Justice. Um, I cite letters in the book from the Secretary of the Department of Justice, Stephen Roach, um, in the mid-1930s when they were designing the Constitution, where he says, you really shouldn't be giving all this power to judges. You know, this is going to lead to all sorts of unintended consequences. It's going to constrain our power. It's going to uh, constrain Garda power, the security services and all the rest of it. Um, but that was retained in 1937. I think the key date, um, if you're looking at a shift, is 1961. That's the year that Carol O'Dolig, who most people will know as a former president of Ireland, he becomes chief justice. And on the same day, Brian Walsh, who's a young... Um, high court judge in his mid-40s who hadn't made much of an impression. In fact, neither had Carol O'Dolig. I mean, looking back at his record in the 50s, you wouldn't have said that anything radical was going to happen after he was appointed Chief Justice. But what happens is they form an axis, Walsh and O'Dolig, and they're not the only ones. There are other judges who generally agreed with them, um, who affected 
what was, I think, a, a revolution in the courts in Ireland, the legal system, in the way that the courts interacted with government. They started to overhaul criminal law. They took a very liberal view on civil liberties. Um, they started to uh, take a much more assertive, confrontational stance towards the government. Um, and they started to insist on the constitution and the, the role that the constitution should, ha- should have in people's lives. There's a famous line from uh, Carol O'Dolig, I think in the ni- late 1950s, where he was sitting up in the court. This was just before he became chief justice. And he said, gentlemen, we have a constitution, yet nobody seems to know what it means. And he, so what he was getting at was we had this document. It was rich in personal rights and all sorts of rights that hadn't been explored in the previous 30 or 40 years. And so for the next decade, you had rules and conventions torn up. You had new law written. You had the dawn of unwritten rights, rights that weren't written into the constitution, but that the Supreme Court discovered and enshrined. Uh, as our law, um, and, and I think that's that's when there's a crucial a crucial shift. And clearly, that's not a. Or, or assuming it's not a coincidence that that happens at a point of social and political change in Ireland as well, both economic change with the the Lamas Whitaker changes great social change in the 1960s. And you make a reference earlier, early in the book to kind of two opposing or two ends of a spectrum of thinking about what, you know, what the role of a judge should be. And the other hand, well, one hand is this very almost abstract, pure philosophical interpretation of the fundamental principles of law, uh, though, the, though, the, though the heavens may fall. And on the other, a sort of a more pragmatic interaction with the, with the other arms of the state and with, you know, developing uh, different interpretations of personal rights, for example. Absolutely, yeah. They, they, and, and sometimes they coexist within individual judges. But I think sure. judges, a lot of them will happily admit, I mean, uh, that, that they are result-oriented is a, a, quite a loaded way of putting it, but um, pragmatic or looking for the, the just and the correct outcome. And that, that's difficult to pin down. Um, but I, I would imagine if you asked uh, an Irish judge, I haven't done it, but if you asked an Irish judge, what's the quality that you most admire in your colleagues? Uh, they would say common sense. You know, so that sort of intangible, intangible uh, uh, quality. Um, I think both approaches have coexisted throughout the the twentieth century. And you're absolutely right that all of this happened because uh, there were other changes happening in Irish society. You had new generations coming up in politics, in sport, in business. Um, you had a uh, the, the the grip of the Catholic Church and its social teaching was weakening. Um, you had you know economic uh, developments that were important to the background as well. Brian Walsh was asked about this much later in his in his uh, life. I got a, a couple of tapes of interviews he did with an, an Australian journalist in the uh, mid 1980s. And he was asked about this, you know, why did this happen? And he said, you know, the judges who had worked in Ireland previous to the 1960s, um, they were brought up in the British system. They were reading textbooks that had been published in the middle of the previous century. Um, and <clears throat> he was part of a new generation who were questioning things, much like the rest of the, you know, the society was, or certainly that sort of urban cosmopolitan part of the society. They were questioning orthodoxies. They were looking at things anew. And that was the background. I think this culminated then in the, ni- the early 1970s when you had cases like the McGee case on contraception, which really blew things out of the water and, and I think was probably the most uh, important decision they ever took. So, Pat, go yeah, ahead. Just one point I think is 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 worth making that this it, it isn't, these are not esoteric legal matters. And one of the great strengths of the book is that he points out and illustrates the way in which these legal decisions have made an impact on uh, on people's lives. I mean, you talk about the appointment of these judges, uh, O'Dolig, Walsh, I suppose later, Henshee, McCarthy, 
uh, maybe there's vivid portraits of all these um, of all these men, uh, and most of them are men in in the book. But the appointment of those judges were, you know, more significant events. It would turn out than any general election was or the selection of most of, of the vast majority of ministers in terms of the changes that they uh, they made to the laws because supreme court judges write the law in many uh, in many respects i mean okay which is formally, a source of tension often isn't it not just in not just in this country and there's you know there's there's oh, a, for there's sure a, yeah well yeah. obviously from the point of view as ruin has already said from the point of view of the legislature doesn't take very kindly to the idea of other people writing the laws and the whole idea of judicial activism you know creates you know creates tensions at the very least and there is a tension but our our, our i suppose our our system is structured to have that drawing i suppose from the, the kind of the, the the architecture first thought out by the framers of the american Constitution. Constitution, that there is this tension, or another way of putting it, that there is checks and balances, that the various arms of government check the power of uh, of each other. But one of the the things in uh, that 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 Ruan draws out over uh, uh, over the I suppose the latter half of the book is uh, the extent to which the Supreme Court, by conscious design, evolved for itself. A role as a check on the power of uh, of of government, and that is one of the most important things about our life, uh, about our our political organisation, that it has that role and, uh, and 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 exercises that function. Tony, you've been very quiet there, which must be a terrible terrible thing for a barrister. Um, in terms of, we haven't y- paid him yet. Y- <laughs> <laughs> Um, I might come to that later. You live within this institution, which to most of us is a kind of a mystery, and we only encounter it, you know, if we're unlucky, a couple, or if we're lucky, a couple of times in our in our lives. Do you recognise the institution which which Ruan is is describing here and its importance within our? Society? Yes, I, I do. I mean, to take up from what Ruan and Pat has said, one of the reasons the Supreme Court has evolved into such a role is that in its early days, uh, the chief architect of the court system that we have now, Hugh Kennedy, um, made a very important kind of decision that the judges, the Superior Court judges, wouldn't have any role in government itself because under the the court system that we had up to 1922, uh, if the um, main ministers in the British administration here in Ireland were absent the judges could exercise some executive functions. And um, Hugh Kennedy decided that there had to be that had to be cut off. So that meant that the, the courts were separate. I suppose the fact that, you know, you had the four courts, you had a separation that way. And while it didn't come make any huge importance until the 1960s, there was at that stage with a, a new generation who'd grown up in a, an independent Ireland people began to take cases against the government to say, well, uh, the political system, uh, Linster House or the government isn't doing what we want them to do, so we're going to challenge that in the courts. Uh, And because the Supreme Court is an important institution, but it can only react to the cases that are brought before it. Um, And uh, there was probably a greater willingness to do that at that stage. You had um, people like Brian Walsh who were born into that new era, born in 1918. So a younger person, not with the baggage of uh, the War of Independence, Civil War, cruel O'Dall, like someone who you know, knew a number of languages, uh, was classically educated. So you, you had that kind of, you had that, that broader um, look at remit of things. 
and I do recognise the 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 positives and also the limitations of uh, the courts. Um, we're, they're creatures of society, so they have been male dominated. Supreme Court has been largely male dominated until the last 10 to 15 years when there has been some women appointed to it as the legal professions were and that change is taking place even in the legal professions but the Supreme Court will only mirror the society of which it is part sometimes it moves ahead so the McGee judgment was something where it it moved ahead perhaps of where a lot of society was but it recognised that there was a right to marital privacy so that Mrs McGee could purchase uh, contraceptive uh, pills in relation to Sometimes it's behind. So for in the Norris case, we'd now say that it was behind the curve. And the Norris judgment, when one reads the majority judgment, you go, how could a Supreme Court in 1984 have said that about David Norris? How does... Uh, it's a tricky thing to ask a judge to know where to be on the curve, though, isn't it? I mean, well, people, that, everybody defines that, that curve differently. Well, that, that's where that tension is. And, and I suppose it's, it's that thing to see as well, that the judgments of the Supreme Court are political. They have political consequences, um, if the Supreme Court strikes down a law on the 1st of October and that means that the government is suddenly facing a bill of some type, either that, uh, uh, for instance, in, the, for the, in 2004, in relate the legislation that Mary Harney had about recouping the costs of um, uh, health care for older people, if the government was suddenly facing a bill of 500 million on the 1st of October, that would impact on the budget. If, if the Supreme Court decides that some law is unconstitutional or, or a government minister has done something which is illegal. So its decisions do have political consequences. Its major strength has been that the Supreme Court itself in taking those decisions hasn't been a political actor in the way that the US Supreme Court has been, in my view, because the US Supreme Court now is so political that uh, when you looked at the Bush-Gore um, controversy in 2000, you were almost going, well, you know where four of the judges are, you know where four of the other judges, there might be one swing judge. At the moment, the court over there is completely deadlocked, a bit like the US government in general, where they're in, they're in institutional gridlock, nothing is getting done. And the Supreme Court here has avoided that uh, to an extent. Um, the judges haven't commented and haven't. there hasn't been much writing and that's probably been a reluctance to get involved in politics even after the event, even as a memoir, that they didn't want to reignite controversies. They make a decision and they move on. So this book is important because what it does is it opens up discussion on those decisions to see that sometimes uh, those decisions may have uh, been supported by the public and sometimes not. But the Supreme Court should be independent. Sometimes it will have to say things that are uh, or decide things which are controversial and are uh, awkward for the government. But you have to have that independence and, and, and in terms around of that, that relationship with government, there are two things which it seems it seems to me two kind of recurring patterns that, that, that I see in the in, in that relationship. One is the Supreme Court essentially trying to get the legislature to pull its socks up because it has taken far too long to address a, a long-running sore of one sort. And we've seen various examples. And sooner or later it comes to the Supreme Court and the government is reprimanded and finally has to has to take action, which it has been for political reasons perhaps or the entropy of our of 
our political system has, hasn't taken. That's one part. And the other part is a suggestion at the political level from governments that on advice from the Attorney General, a certain course of action cannot be taken because the government's interpretation, according to that advice, which is not always made available to the public, it, w- it, will, fa- it will fail at the, at, at, at the constitutional level. And those are two instances where it seems to me the court interacts uh, either passively or actively on a regular basis with the political system. Absolutely. I mean, a huge proportion of the decisions the Supreme Court takes have implications for government and the way it works. That case Tony mentioned about nursing home charges uh, when Mary Harney was Minister for Health, that cost the state €186 million. Euro. Um, I mean, that's a huge amount of money. Um, and it was a decision the Supreme Court took very quickly. I mean, they often say we won't get involved in the legislative process, we don't get involved in policy. They took that decision very quickly and there was unanimity within the court on it. And um, presumably that kind of thing causes rage in political circles because they think these bloody people in ivory towers with wigs on their heads it, making decisions that have disastrous consequences in the real world. It certainly does. And, and you really sensed, I mentioned that there was that wariness in the 30s about giving the Supreme Court all this power. It's a recurring theme through the whole of the last 90 uh, period of 90 years that I cover in the book. Um, in the 1960s and 70s, government were furious, particularly the Department of Justice, which really jealously guarded its um, prerogative as regards the Gardaí and the security services. They were furious about what um, Walsh and O'Dolly were doing, uh, and other judges, Kingsman Moore, Budd, all these other judges who were very important as well. Um, but they were, I think they were the, the, the key axis, Walsh and O'Dolly. Um, but the question is, what does the government do if it's annoyed with the Supreme Court? And the answer is not very much, except in time, try to reorient the court in subtle ways with the passage of time. So, you know, if you take the early 1970s, um, late 1972, Carol um decided to go to Luxembourg to be the first Irish judge on the new European court after Ireland had joined the EEC. Um, and so now the government has a very big decision on its hands. It was a Jack Lynch, uh, Fianna Fáil government at the time. Um, and the speculation, the assumption was that Brian Walsh would get that job. But when I looked at some of the sources, when I spoke to people who were around at the time, they told me Brian Walsh was never really in the reckoning because even though he had links to Fianna Fáil, as had Carlo Dolig, even though Fianna Fáil was in government, even though Jack Lynch was quite a mild-mannered man who never said anything in public about the Supreme Court, he was furious, for example, about the decision that the Supreme Court had taken in 1966, a Supreme Court on which Walsh had sat, about bail, which said that you couldn't deny somebody bail. The Supreme Court said you can't deny somebody bail because you think they might commit another crime while out on bail. And the Supreme Court threw that out and said that can't be a ground for denying somebody bail. And apparently I'm told um, by some very well-placed sources that that infuriated Jack Lynch, that he thought it showed no common sense, that it, you know, the Supreme Court shouldn't be getting involved at this sort of micro level um, in constraining the security forces. Um, and so that was one of the big reasons why Walsh didn't get, get the Which get the raises the, the thorny question of, of judicial appointments, which, which the, the thorny and unresolved question, I suppose, part of judicial appointments, which runs back to the kind of foundation of the state that many people feel that, that this isn't done the way, the way that it should be. I mean, that, this doesn't just apply to the Supreme Court, obviously. The, Ruan's book has is, is a number of juicy stories about how judges get appointed or how they seek to be appointed or, you know, encounters in supermarkets and all kinds of things. Uh, th- th- there are th- there are some, there's some great gossipy bits uh, in it about that. Though the, 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 the message that uh, I, I took from the book is actually that our system of judicial appointments, political though it may be to the extent that 
ministers for justice bring appointments to the cabinet and you know the cabinet which is obviously comprised of politicians makes the uh, makes the appointment but it has actually functioned in a uh, functioned largely uh, as a meritocracy rather than certainly at the level of the supreme court the district court i think and circuit court to an extent is considerably different but uh, it has uh, so you're saying they're not a meritocracy I'm saying that the role. Uh, well, I'm 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 repeating the finding. Reminds I think of the, the book yeah. that um, uh, that it is a lot more political and a lot more yeah. lobbying goes on for yeah. lower judicial so uh, uh, appointments. Not so much for the Supreme Court because politicians realise it's important that actually the calibre of people appointed to the Supreme Court uh, in in the main has been um, has been extremely high. I do think and I wrote about this a little bit um, myself. I do think that there is an emerging problem at the at high court level that the very best lawyers, partly because of changes made to uh, pension rules, which particularly hit, uh, uh, particularly hit, hit lawyers, and uh, and also the controversy over judicial salaries, which uh, Ruan outlines at great length um, and fascinating detail in the book, um, has led to reluctance on the part of the very best lawyers um, to become uh, uh, to become judges. Um, it's interesting, uh, and 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 again, this is in the book how the Informal vetting process uh, at a p- political and uh, at a political level has kind of superseded structures that, like the Judicial Appointments Board, which were set up uh, to make the process more transparent, to make it more. Um, so you're saying uh, they're just going to judicial appointments. There's a great. There's a great line. Um, uh, there's a, there's a great line in the book where. Um, the uh, d- describes how, uh, how how names would come up for potential appointment and, uh, and 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 how it would be considered. And it said names would be scratched from the list due to a lack of experience or patchy record. But the board also came up. This is the Judicial Appointments Board. Also came up with informal codes to weed out unsuitable names. Temperament was code for bonkers, drink problem, issues at home recalls one further member. Therefore, the mere mention of temperament was enough to result in an application being discreetly put aside. <laughs> it's, it's full of, it's full of stuff. Having like said that, Tony, I mean, I read, you know, I read in Ruan's book and others have read about what, what goes on down the forecourt. There's plenty of temperament down there. Well, there, there is because uh, when cases are on before judges, they're going to be hard fought. Mm. If the state is being sued by an individual, the state will defend itself to the hilt if it has any legal avenue available to it to defend its corner because it'll be worried that there might be that bill for 186 million around the corner or that this judgment will have implications because if a judgment is given against the state it might be used by another litigant in the following year to try and establish another add-on to whatever principle is established. So there is that in the, the tension about the judge's pay in 2011 showed that and showed the, the difficulties and the the meetings and where people were shouting at each other and people were threatening resignation. My view on all of that is that the structures that we've had up to now and the informal systems have worked, but I don't think they're working now. I think there should be a proper appointment system. The Judicial Appointments Board itself in its annual reports has said we don't have the resources to do interviews, we don't have the resources to do any proper vetting, And they've stopped doing even the informal vetting because of legal advice they got in the mid-2000s. So they now send forward every name of a person who meets the bare qualification criteria with no real ranking. 
So and that's, I don't, that's a useless function. It, it yeah. is, it is. Mm. It's, it's, it's lip service to being a, a, an appointments board. What about the remuneration issue? Because as, as, as Pat said, and as Ruan enumerates in the book, you know, there was this, this change in, in, in pensions. And effectively, what it, I suppose what it means is that, that the best lawyers in the country will make an awful lot more money in private practice than they will uh, take, taking up a judicial appointment, which must, in the, long, in the medium to long term, have some kind of a negative impact on the quality of, 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 of applicants. Just, that was all always the case but yeah. they have been disadvantaged by particular changes to, to which some people argue were actually kind of un, uh, unforeseen would hit a small number of people as happens you know they hit uh, high earning lawyers because high earning lawyers had massive uh, pen, uh, had massive pension pots mm. but the net the, the effect of that one judge told me once that he when he joined uh, uh, when he joined the judiciary his income the following year was a quarter of his uh, his income uh, in the final year before he uh, uh, bef- before he became a judge. Now, to an extent, that has always been the case that mm-hmm. uh, lawyers took a big drop. The best lawyers at a particular stage in their career were happy to take Say, a drop. I've, made, uh, uh, I've had drop fifteen years income. making these very but large the sums, sums of money. The and sums, now sums have I'm changed. The sums money. have changed uh, right. now, and it has led to. Uh, the best lawyers uh, are, are a reluctance on the part of the best lawyers to become judges. Is that a problem, Tony? Yeah, I think, I, and I think part of the problem there was that the judiciary and the legal professions weren't able to explain at that time the importance, especially in respect of that referendum, of the independence of judges' pay, that that was something that was a cornerstone of their independence and that they shouldn't feel that uh, the government was going to decide how much they were paid uh, and that the government might punish them if they didn't like a number of decisions the courts gave. They, they lost and that argument, though, they didn't did, they? I they, mean, you they, can they, understand that argument on the abstract level, but a lot of people who were suffering at the time... They, they, I think they did, because they saw the headline figures of what judges were getting and their pensions, and they didn't see the connection with that, that independence that was needed. I think that's partly a failure of not having the structures that might have been there. If there was a judicial council that had been set up at that time, it may have been that an amendment to the government's proposal could have been made to allow the Judicial Council get kind of independent research uh, or have an independent body who would advise the government as to what judges' pay should be and what it should be reduced. So, for instance, uh, look at the Constituency Commission. There's a Constituency Commission which is established every few years to look at boundaries and they give a report to the government that was established in the late 70s after the gerrymandering. And there's a kind of a constitutional convention that whatever they decide of the constituency boundaries, the Minister for the Environment will bring legislation in to uh, legislate for that and change the boundaries accordingly. So it's not there in a constitutional amendment, but there's, a, there's no constitutional convention that the Boundary Commission report will be, will be followed and something could have been engineered and, in my view, should be engineered in that way. It, it hasn't been done. Um, but in terms of at the moment, there is difficulties. There, I think there was legislation that was brought in. There was two chief changes or main changes. One was that you had to have 20 years done as a judge now to get a full pension. So that may have taken out some people who were in their early to mid-50s. And the other change was a, a, a rather arcane tax change, which affected the private pension pots that some judges had built up and thought that they could use in their retirement, 
but those were raided in, gov- in government legislation course, around 2010. Of course, course that, that happened in conjunction with the financial crash during which I think it's probably fair to say that like many people of, of means, which they were, they, they got burnt. A, a lot of people, on the, a lot of judges got, got badly burnt, so found themselves in some financial difficulty. They did, and that compounded the problems that the judiciary were facing. I think um, one of the key points during that whole period from 2009 to 2013 when they're having these disputes with government was that the judiciary didn't have any mechanism uh, through which it could speak to the public or to government at all, um, you know. So everyone it else still working. Doesn't. Uh, well, it has the association, but you're right. Yeah, it, it still it's, doesn't it's, have anything it's proper. I, that, that that's the real thing, and and even for their own training, for any disciplinary problems, it doesn't have. And I, I think it itself needs that. Hmm. And I think the public uh, view of the judiciary probably needs that. We're in 2016 now. Uh, it would help them. It actually yeah. would help them a lot. And you would find if they did have a mechanism like that, that actually some of the strongest proponents for reform of the judicial appointment system are judges themselves. So where would the resistance come from? Um, I, I, I think there's differing views on how it should be done. I mean, some people think you should remove political involvement entirely from the process. Other people believe that it's important for democratic purposes that people who are elected should have some involvement in that process. I happen to think that's probably a good idea, but I think you also need a system that that elevates merit to the top of the list or very near the top, as well as diversity and all sorts of other factors. Could I come pick up on just one point that was mentioned a little bit earlier, and, and it's absolutely true. Tony mentioned that for m- most of the history of the Supreme Court, it's all been men sitting up there on the on the on the bench. Um, Pat also mentioned, you know, how this ha- this court has a huge impact on the daily lives of ordinary people in Ireland. It's absolutely true that it's n- nearly always men, and it has been nearly always men until the last ten or twenty years on the Supreme Court. But some of the most important people in this book are women. Um, they're people who took cases. And I was struck again and again by how some of the biggest cases, some of the cases that have had the biggest impact on the way Ireland is today were taken by women. So we can sue the state today because a woman named Kathleen Byrne in 1964 fell into a trench dug by the Department of Posts and Telegraphs outside her house in Bray. Uh, and she, she wrote to the department and said, I broke my leg because I fell into this trench. You should give me some compensation. They said, no, you can't sue the state. This was a hangover from the, uh, the British idea that the Crown was sovereign and could do no wrong. And the Supreme Court threw that out and said, of course, you can sue the state. Um, Look at the forecast today. Look at the proportion of cases that involve individuals suing the state. That's because of Kathleen Byrne. Um, Gladys Ryan, a young woman in her mid-20s who took a case um, against the fluoridation of the water supply in in Dublin in the mid-1960s. She lost her case, but because she took that case, we had the principle of unenumerated or unwritten rights. And we've had more than a dozen of these rights. What about, I take that on board and absolutely, and 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 particularly the point about about the, the women. But what about the counter-argument to that, which is that as a result of our structures of the way we've set them, but we live in an extremely litigious society where, you know, many more people have fallen into trenches since and, have, and perhaps, perhaps too many. And 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 that the courts are seen, rightly or wrongly, as as uh, as the, the the place of first resort in this country more than they are perhaps in, in other countries. Well, that, that partly comes back to the, the things you mentioned earlier on where you know, about judicial activism. The judges in a number of big cases have said the Oireachtas, there's a constitutional provision or there's a particular area of law where the Oireachtas have not legislated on and we're left to pick up the pieces. So the the abortion controversy, the X case, a number of the judgments in that case said nobody has helped us with the legislation on this. So in 1992 they're faced with trying to interpret a piece of legislation. And it's happened in many other areas as well. 
So that's the thing where the courts, they, they're reactive. They're not proactive. And part of it is our political system. We, we don't have a culture, in my view, of kind of legislating, getting ahead of the curve in legislation. So we still have things, you know, even if you were to say that controversy without getting into it, uh, how you legislate for IVF, surrogacy, all of those issues haven't been dealt with. And the courts... Do you, look, you look at the terrible way in which families are treated who have to uh, get recompense for an injury, let's say, at birth to a child, the, 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 the awful legal process which, which they're dragged through by, by the state where it should be possible to set up some, some way of dealing with those it, kinds it, of things. It should, but I mean, the, 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 any, of the, any of the documentaries which have been done that RTE have done and the persons who are the litigants in those cases will say, look, we wanted to settle this earlier, but the, sure. the state will will challenge and will fight it until the doorsteps itself. Now, some of that can be dealt with with better case management. And there is even some new rules coming in in October for certain types of cases. The judges are alive to that to some extent. But the, the, the thing of litigation, the, the courts reacted in a way, and they, it is powerful, the amount of judicial review that there is, that persons can go and sue the state but that also is something that a lot of people would say has resulted in some good things. I mean, I was noting a couple of things. Mr. Crotty in 1987, who challenged uh, the EU, uh, the ratification of the single European market, that's resulted in referenda having to be held since then, which I think most of the public would say, actually, it's better that we have our say on this. Um, and uh, it, it does have consequences that way. So it, it's done good. Um, we do have a lot of litigation in the country, but you, you have to say that, that that's because, because sometimes the government can take the lead either in setting up a system and even, let's say, the asylum area. There's thousands of judicial reviews in the system um, because of uh, what those persons who have been refused asylum status or leave to remain think was a legal wrong that occurred during the process. They, they have, those thousands of cases have been in the system for the last 20 years that should have been an, enough of a wake-up call for the government to set up a proper tribunal system that would be fair and that would hear those cases. But yet, still in 2016, we're dealing with a system that's creaking and people are going to the I courts. Mean, that's a legitimate reproach to, the, to, our, to a failure in politics, isn't it, Pat? Well, yeah, I mean, the, 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 like, the, the, it's the fundamental tension of our types of social organisation. How powerful should the state be? And what the courts have done with the Supreme Court has charted a way uh, to doing is to offer the citizen a, uh, a weapon, if you like, uh, against, uh, against the state. And it has outlined uh, a, a philosophy that actually I think most citizens would agree with, that the state has fundamental, or that the uh, individual has fundamental rights that the state cannot transgress. It seems to me that's a very good thing that the uh, that the, the court has done. It has strengthened the hand of individual citizens but, but against always. the overweening power uh, yeah. of the state, yeah. which all states, not uniquely yeah. the Irish state or anything like yeah. that, but all states are, uh, are, yeah. are, are prone can, to. Can I just make one final point of that? The, the courts, I think the majority of cases that citizens bring against the state in the courts are lost. The courts are... They're, they're careful and they're cautious about enumerating or setting out new rights. So I suppose maybe the most recent high-profile example was the Right to Die case, where Mary Fleming, I brought that case, very tragic circumstances. Uh, you couldn't but have sympathy to her position. 
But the, the Supreme Court in that case said, look, we, we cannot uh, enumerate or decide that there's a right to die here. That's something for the legislator to decide. Uh, it needs political acti- activism uh, and we're not going to set up a, a new right that there isn't one in the constitution so for that. So, so, so they, they are careful. Mm. They are careful that, that they're trying to build on the blocks. Probably if you look at the, the corpus of decisions, there aren't kind of maniac judges finding rights that nobody believes uh, no rational people exist in the constitution. I suppose yeah. fi- finally, Ruan, the, the, thing, the, the final thing, and, it, and it's pointed out in your book, is that we're at a point of, of great change for the Supreme Court and that we're kind of entering into a, into a new era where perhaps because of the introduction of the new appeals court, the Supreme Court is being redefined as a purely constitutional court as, as opposed to also always the court of final appeal and that might be a fundamental change in the way it operates. That's right. There was a huge huge backlog of cases uh, that was taking years and years to get through until very recently, until 2014, when they set up the government, uh, the last coalition government set up a court of appeal, which is an intermediate court that sits just below the Supreme Court and above the High Court. And um, only in exceptional circumstances will you be able to appeal from that court up to the Supreme Court or leapfrog that new court and go from the High Court to the Supreme Court. Um, and what it means is that in practice, for decades, I spoke to judges who were on the court in the 70s and they were saying um, it, it was it was a huge workload. You were giving cases less time because you knew that there were another 10 cases to be sorted out that week. You had trolleys come into your office every day with boxes and boxes of documents that you had to read through and that was a theme for the last 30 or 40 years Um, and so they set up this court it'll relieve the Supreme Court of that burden mostly and I I suspect what will happen they've never said this officially that it might become a a constitutional court but it's logical that that is what would happen that they would be dealing with the big constitutional questions they won't be dealing with you know the lay litigant coming in and saying she's taking a case because her neighbour's extension is blocking her light, which are the sort of cases that the Supreme Court was hearing until very recently. Um, they'll be hearing the meaty constitutional cases. They'll be hearing the cases of big national significance. Um, they'll probably slim it down a little bit. There are 10 judges, judges there at the moment and they increased it because of the caseload. Um, they may bring it down to seven or five again. Um, and the question is, if they're dealing with fewer cases, will they have well, they will have more time to deliberate over them. Um, will you see any shift in the way it does its work because of that, because it has more time to think about them, because it has more time to, to focus on these big issues? Um, and will the, 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 the new Supreme Court become an even more powerful player in Irish life than it has been so far? Mm-hmm. We shall leave it there. The book is called The Supreme Court. It's published by Penguin Ireland. Uh, Ruan McCormick, uh, Tony McGillicuddy, Pat Lee, thanks for joining us today. And that's it for this edition of Inside Politics. Thanks to our producer Declan Conlon and engineer JJ Vernon. Remember, you can mail me at hlinhan at irishtimes.com or you can find me on Twitter at hlinhan. And if you're listening on iTunes, we're always very grateful if you rate or even review the show there. It helps to get it out to a larger audience. But until the next time, goodbye and thanks very much indeed for listening.